Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Many of you know this by now because I've talked about it quite a bit. This whole platform and community and the book that we released behind it is dedicated to my good friend Corey Griffin, who passed away tragically in an accident in August of 2014. Corey was a legend in every sense of the word. If you remember the Ice Bucket Challenge, Corey actually started that for his friend Pete Frades, who has ALS. Corey was a best friend to everyone who knew him. He had that magical touch to make you feel like you just were tight-knit best buddies. And he did that with everyone in a really genuine way. I first met Corey when I got the job at Bain Capital. It was small and close-knit, and Corey and I shared a cubicle wall. So over the course of the nearly three years that I was at Bain, almost every morning would start catching up with Corey, every evening would wrap up talking together. And it was Corey that I showed a sketch of the cover page to what is now the When to Jump book. Corey believed in me. And he would ask me about the book and the project over the course of the next year and a half. Even as I trained part-time and got ready to play the pro tour and saved up money and pitched sponsors, he would still ask, hey, when's that book coming out? And so when I left Bain and moved to New Zealand and was about a month or two in, I emailed everyone at Bain to say, hey, say, you know, so long for now, keep in touch. And Corey's email, which I'll never forget, said, hey, that's great, but I expect when to jump to be a great success. Corey passed away, as I said, just a, a month or two after that. And that's what, for me, made me realize, you know, I need to, I need to push on because Corey expected it because life is unpredictable and we have only so much time and I need to get this project through. So fast forward from then several years, the book becomes real. It's dedicated to Corey Griffin and his foundation and our book tour gets to go through Boston. I worked closely with the publisher and production team of this podcast to find a way to capture the evening that we put together with Corey's Foundation and Harpoon Brewery. What we wanted to do was was share the story of the book through the personal narrative I just shared a little bit of with you now, but do it live and celebrate Corey's legacy because to me that's what inspired everything that followed. It'll begin with myself and Corey's brother Mike who would interview me and then we move into uh, a panel discussion with two of the contributors in the book, the CEO of Harpoon, Dan Canary, who left commercial banking to start the brewery, and Laura McCowan, a single parent who left marketing to go into blogging. We were an oversold crowd on a cold winter evening in Boston, five years to the week nearly, after I sketched the cover page with Corey. We had beers flowing, we had soft pretzels coming out of the oven, and we had a massive beer hall of strangers and friends and supporters and when to jump community members who who wanted to be a part of this evening and it was one that i'll remember forever and i hope you enjoy it i hope that this that this recording gives a little bit of that magic that 
the evening stood for and that Corey gave to me. Enjoy. So I, I do really appreciate you all being here. We, um, I mean, to back up a little bit, and I'll give you a little bit of the backstory that I don't get to tell often. You know, this means more than you all can ever know to me to be able to, to finish a project that my good friend Corey and Mike's brother got to inspire. And it's truly the reason that I'm here today with the book and that uh, I was able to see it through. And we'll tell some of those stories and, and share in some of the hopefully exciting insights and accomplishments that you'll get from, from reading the book if you get to it. Um, but first, I'd like to tell you a little bit about, about why we're here. So five years ago this month, I sat at a cubicle in the Hancock Tower. It was on the 39th floor. And it was a late, freezing cold January evening. And there were two people left at the office. And it was myself and my buddy whose cubicle was next to mine, Corey. So I needed someone that was crazy enough to believe in this idea. And little did I know, but I was sitting next to that guy. <laughs> I turned to Corey and I had just talked to a woman who I cold called. You know, she had been featured in a magazine article that was on my desk. She had left Wall Street to become a cyclist. And what she told me when I called her had nothing to do with being a cyclist. And everything about you know, telling her parents and what her friends would think. You know, what if she failed when she left her, her job in a bank? Uh, what she thought her LinkedIn profile would look like if she did fail. And I sketched a cover page that night, and I walked into Corey's office, and I said, Corey, you know, this should be a book, but this should be a community. This should be something bigger. And I truly think 99 out of 100 people would say, you know, good luck with that. We got work tomorrow. Why don't you, you know, get real? And Corey being Corey, he just said, you're absolutely right. Let's make this a book. You got to go make this a community. I'm expecting to see it. And, you know, also Corey being Corey, for the next three years, <laughs> I would see him and he'd say, number one, how are you doing? And number two, when's that book coming out? And I had one story within, you know, probably the first 18 months of this idea or project. And to be completely honest, I would never make it a book or a community or anything if it wasn't for my buddy who was next to me at work asking me every happy hour and lunchtime and walk to work and work out after work and weekends when we'd see each other. You know, how's that book going? And so when I left and saved up money and, and practiced my sport, and a lot of folks here from the squash community in Boston were a big part of that, you know, I said goodbye to everybody. I bought a one-way ticket around the world. And I did the customary blah, blah, yada, yada, send the email to work, tell them you're leaving, guns blazing, see you never. And, and everybody gave me the same response except one guy. So it had been 18 months since I sketched a cover page in that office. It was May of 2014. And I get this email back. And it was from Corey, and his, it, was, it was his last email that he would send me. And he said, congrats on doing this, but I'm expecting this book thing to come true. And uh, as, as you know, Corey passed tragically a couple months later. Um, and I messaged Mike and Casey and I said, you know, 
one, I feel pretty hopeless, but two, he really made an impact on me as he did thousands of other people, many of whom were in this room. And I really appreciate the chance to finish this project. And so that's, that's a backstory I don't get to tell much, but if there's one thing you take away from this book is the guy that it's dedicated to is 100% the reason that it exists. So uh, it means a lot for you all to be here. And if you knew Corey, you know, he started the Ice Bucket Challenge, not a, not a bad side gig when he was working to uh, put up a little bit of dough and publicity for a cause he believed in. He was the kind of guy that, that had really big dreams and believed you should chase him. So you know, not to be too somber, but it means a lot to be able to be here and to celebrate not only this book, but truly his foundation, his legacy. Uh, and if you get one thing out of tonight before you go home, it's that you know, he's still impacting the community of Boston. He's still impacting so many people that, that know him and that didn't get a chance to. But uh, you know, I feel very lucky that we can do something, hopefully through this book, which is showing you know, with everyone who reads it a little bit of what he was about. So. Uh, you've already stunned me. I don't know how, how much of a moderator I'm going to be after that. I was expecting that answer, but I, uh, I truly have to thank you. Uh, that means the world to me, as it does my family, and I'm sure many others in this room who uh, were lucky to have been touched by my brother's life. and in your life as well. You've always been such a special kid and special friend to him as well. So I'm just so humble in, in telling that story and it, it means, means the world to uh, so many in this room. So thank you. But on a lighter note, um, we, we, we managed to pack the room tonight. So how did, the, how did the overall Boston community, obviously you're fortunate enough to spend a lot of time in, in a great place. And I know Boston has a special part place in your heart, but how did the Boston community play a role in, in the book? Yeah, if, if you get a chance to read the book, uh, I know the first couple hundred folks, thanks to the, the foundation, were able to get a copy. I'll be around after if you want to chat about it. There's, I think, 20 left in the back. You'll have a chance to grab them. But, you know, this book truly, it came out of Boston. I was, I spent my real first adult years in, in Back Bay. I worked at the Hancock Tower. A lot of the people in this room were the first people I whispered this idea to. Um, it, it's the conversations with people like Paige Caparelli, who was an executive assistant at BCV at Bain Capital Ventures, where I worked. That's uh, one of the first pages of the book. And I remember saying to Paige, you know, I have this idea. Do you think I should go chase it? And she said, honey, I missed my chance, and you're not going to miss yours. And it was, it was this candidness that I feel like only Boston natives contain typically expletive-filled, but <laughs> and ending with go Pats. But, uh, but by the end of it, I was like, you know, from Southern California to find a home like this, um, and then the squash community with people like Amrit and Andy and, and others, all of them, you know, these folks are in the book. I don't think, I don't think there's anyone else that's not a Boston native that had uh, a mention or a story that I felt it really important to write down. Um, I was in the basement of the Hancock Tower when I first told a friend of mine, Bill Nimmo, who is a friend of mine's dad, that I was thinking of leaving Bain. And I remember finding who I thought was the perfect Switzerland in all of this. I didn't want to talk to my parents because they thought I'd be crazy. I didn't want to talk to my friends because they'd say, go do it, see what happens. I found you know, just a normal guy living his life in Boston who I barely knew, who sat with me for an hour in March of 2012, 
you know, two and a half years before I left Boston to go chase this dream, who said to me, you know, you don't get redos in life. And I think that those types of sentiments, those nuggets, I don't know many other communities that would support, you know, truly what was a crazy idea if it wasn't for the folks here. Awesome. So going back to the sketch, right? So I saw a few of your ex-employers in the room here tonight, maybe your bosses might think it was a little strange that you were drawing uh, book covers in your time at Bain, but I, uh, why, what do you think the original idea, why, why the sketch, why did that happen? Why do you think it stuck with you so long? Yeah, so I guess this is more on the book, but when I sketched the cover page and showed it to Corey, I had actually just Googled when to chase your dreams. Uh, if you haven't done that, don't. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, I searched through hundreds of the O's in the Google search results, and I'll summarize it for you. You get, you get one of two things. You get the, on one side, the inspiration and the fluff and like the live your truth, which I still don't know what that means, but a lot of that, like the quotes. And then you get the stuff on the other side, which is like, I mean, everyone here, I'm sure can appreciate that, that idiot who posts the LinkedIn post that you just want to hate, but you end up liking it because it's good for him. He sold his company, whatever. But you don't really get to see like what's in the middle of that. You know, you see a photo on Instagram or you scroll through your news feed. You know, you see the end result. And I think in our culture, it's a lot easier to talk about what happens when it's a fairy tale ending than talk about the ugly, unsexy steps that come in between of, you know, deciding to jump and, and then actually going to do it. Uh, so the real purpose of the book was never to write a book. It was to find permission and to sketch the stories of that cyclist and other people who had taken a risk and really could be open and vulnerable about it. So, you know, to me, I was looking for permission to tell my parents, here are stories of people that, that did what they loved, that struggled through it, and that most importantly, they don't regret it. Uh, and so, at first it was just me, and then it was Corey, and there was a guy down the hall, it was Frank, there was a guy on the bus, a woman at the bar, person at the reception desk, and all of a sudden these stories started to take life. Um, and then a book was born, but but in my mind, it was always going to be bigger than a book. It was a place like this where you could have beers and talk about what you wanted to do and not you know, feel weird about doing it. Awesome. In, in the, the book, and, I, and I've read the book, and it's incredible, but it seems You're to have started. Yeah, yeah, I'm sitting it's next great. to you. It's a great book. Everyone should read it. It's the best book he's ever read. <laughs> but um, it seems to have started as, as corporate jumps. But um, in, in the book I originally that you had designed, I think was had a corporate focus. Have the have the jumps evolved over time to be more than just a simple? I don't like this job. I'm going to the next job. Yeah. So this is kind of a funny story, which I think will answer the question. Maybe, maybe not. But it's six months into getting back to you know the real world after three months turned into nearly two years, two hundred thousand miles, living with strangers for every night of what was 50-something countries in every continent, and pulling up a stool at the bar or a seat at the dinner table and, and living life with people that would ask me the same question that I asked that cyclist. You know, when do you go do what you want to do in life? Um, and I came back from that, and a couple months passed, and we started to, you know, I can get into the details, we started this community and this platform, and we got approached by Airbnb to do a, a partnership and Airbnb, it turns out 25% of Airbnb hosts 
use the money they make hosting to go do something different. They use that money and they travel, they do other things. And so they thought we were you know, a company. I was very much a person. Um, but I said, sure, you know, our company would be happy to partner with you. I even think I threw around the word brand and perhaps platform. I lived in Silicon Valley. By this point, I was unemployed, but I knew if I lived in San Francisco, uh, you get to call yourself an entrepreneur, not unemployed. <laughs> so I was, an, I was an entrepreneur in San Francisco getting to partner with Airbnb. And at the uh, first part of the partnership, they, they had me speak to 2,000 guests. And at first, I thought it was, you know, it was anyone who showed up. Um, my parents came thinking that they would be the only ones in the audience because we had just started this company. And it was when to jump with Airbnb. So it was my entire extended family in the front row. And then over time, when we started to open the doors, we ended up with 2,000 people. And it blew us all away. And people were hooked on this question. But what was so interesting was that when we ended, because I thought it was mostly going to be my family in the audience, I gave basically my email in the slides <laughs> to everybody. And I said, email our platform, which went to me. And I said, on our, you know, tell us what your jump is for next year. And we got 600 emails in the course of 15 minutes. And almost every single one of the emails had nothing to do with changing your job. You know, the emails were like, I want to be a parent and have a career. I want to travel more on the weekends. I want to have time for my kids, and I want to learn a new language. Now, the downside to this is that I had said it was a smart learning platform because I lived in Silicon Valley for a few months, and all of the emails went to me. So everyone on the other side was like, oh, this platform, it's so smart. It's like the AI. It's, it's as if a human's responding to you. <laughs> And meanwhile, it's like Friday, Mike, rrr, changing emails, and then Saturday, responding to more, and they're like, it's like there's a person on the other side. They really get me, this, this platform understands my jump. Uh, but I learned firsthand that, you know, for, for me and you, that a jump might be switching jobs, and for someone in, in Wichita, that might be, you know, picking up their kids from school every day. So I think the book ended up becoming more about take agency and control over the decisions you make in your life rather than go move to Bali. Because you know what? Guess what? A lot of people don't actually need that to be happy. So it's pretty interesting. Really cool. So you said you were you used the word platform pretty generously before. Um, but it seems to be a lot more than just a book now. Can you tell me what the vision of When to Jump is and where do you think it's going and what you think it's evolved from being simply just, just a book? Yeah, so there's one real hero in this story, aside from your brother, it'd be my friend Crosby. Um, at the end of 2015, I came back from, you know, it was supposed to be three months turned into two years of playing and traveling. I think I had some tendency to underestimate how long I'd stay doing something, because I said to Crosby, you know, I need a place to crash for a couple weeks. And I was in San Francisco playing my last tournament. Crosby said, yeah, why don't you stay with me? You can stay on our couch. You know, he had four Craigslist roommates. He didn't really care what they thought. <laughs> and so four months later, I, <laughs> I'm like pitching these stories. And I had you know, a story from the first female bishop in the Anglican church who left PR to go into the church. I had a story from the Cubs second baseman who left the Chicago Cubs to go to college. A story from the famous Michael Lewis who left finance to go into writing. 
Um, I say that with all seriousness. People are like, oh, is that weird? Do you think people would buy your book thinking it's his book? I was like, I hope they buy my book thinking it's his book. I hope there are no returns wherever they bought it from. Um, but I had these stories and I had been rejected, you know, by eight or ten editors and the advice I got was that this was going to be a blog, maybe. Uh, and so I was on my buddy's couch just being like, I don't want to be one of those jokers that goes back to the real world without something to show for this community. And in my, in my mind, it was this, you know, we would have media, we'd tell the stories by photo and podcasts, we'd have a book, we'd have festivals called jump clubs, which would inspire people to jump and have, you know, the mix between a TED talk, a music festival, and a farmer's market, somehow a love child of those three. <laughs> And then we'd work with organizations like Airbnb. Like I had all this in my head, but I'm on my buddy's couch and it was the end of 15 and I'm running out of money and I end up going to a, a foundation dinner at a speaker. And this is where I brought my backpack. I had all my stories from years of traveling and I, you know, the Michael Lewis, the Bishop. And I go to this, this party I wasn't invited to and I sit down and a woman next to me goes, you know, what are you here doing? And instead of being like, well, I need to get a job, which is what I probably should have said, I showed her these stories and I had this vision. I was like, I really want to create this platform. And the book's going to be part of it, but something bigger. And she says, you know, have you ever thought about doing video? And I said, you know, listen, lady, that's a nice idea. But uh, I, I'm running out of cash and I just need to get this blog out right now before I, before I kind of have to go back to the real world. She says, you know, darling... Uh, Here's my card, and if you, want to, if you want to chat more, I really think you should do video. Just give me a call. And she gives me her card, and I look down a minute later, and it was Ariana Huffington. So I ended up emailing her, and three weeks later, I'm in the HuffPost office, and there's 15 executives and me wearing the same clothes I finished my travels on. And they look up, and the first question was, you know, is, was this a project or is this a brand? I said, well, it's a brand, obviously. <laughs> Project or brand. And you know what I did? And when I left, I Googled, how do you make a brand? <laughs> and from there, like three months later, we, we launched a partnership. We reached three million people in the first week. We had stories coming in. We started a podcast that's now every Tuesday. We have a book coming out. We have festivals once a year. We worked with Airbnb. But all this stuff came from just faking it. You know, truly just being like, you know, what would Corey do? I mean, like all of these things. I remember calling you up and I was like, you will not believe who is sitting next to me. I think I'm the only one in the world who can't recognize Ariana Huffington's voice. And you said that's exactly what, you know, Corey would have loved to hear. And it's true. Like, it's been a dream, but I think the big vision was never just a book. I hope you love the book. We've been fortunate. This is our sixth event since last Tuesday where the book came out. It's our sixth sellout. We're pumped where it'll go, but it's really a messenger for something bigger. And, and so throughout this whole process, uh, obviously you have a lot to be proud of, but to think this started with you know, a sketch on a, on a piece of paper, you've got Tony Robbins writing reviews, which was a positive one. We've got a- I don't think he does negative ones, <laughs> exactly. but- Yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> but, um, and then you've got Sheryl Sandberg writing the forward to your book. You've got obviously a ton to be proud of. What, what in this whole process makes you the most proud? I mean, maybe this sounds cliche, but I think what I'm most proud of is that we have 44 people that have shared their stories in the book. We're about to hear from Dan and Laura. And 
most of those people are, are everyday people you'd never recognize. Most of those people are, you know, folks just like all of us sitting here and thinking about what we want to do. You know, to me, this is, this is a book that champions the everyday person who decides that they're going to do something about what they're doing in life. And, and I love the fact that, you know, we're building a stage. Uh, I kind of bristle at the idea of self-help. It's a, thankfully we were classified as a business book. Uh, I think my mom can digest that more than a self-help book, but um, it's really kind of a book where you can help yourself, if that makes sense. It's, it's 44 stories that have a loose set of themes, but it's, it's championing like the everyday person who decides to say, you know what, I'm a single parent like Laura, I'm a, I'm a dad like Dan, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this risk. And even if you go to our, you know, we have a podcast every Tuesday, we share a story that could be someone famous, but it could be just an everyday person. And so I think that's what the community is about. And you know, I look at, we have a very, very small team. Um, <laughs> it was a, I was at a conference the other day and the Fortune something company CEO was like, you know, we should work together. Introduce me to your head of BD. So I looked around for him, I couldn't find him. Uh, and I realized that was also me. <laughs> and I do HR and accounting as well. Um, you know, but someone like Amy Van Heron, I don't know where Amy is, but she's our head of marketing. She's also side jumping to start a community for breastfeeding moms called Pump Spotting. You know, I feel very privileged to be able to elevate people's passions, whether they're in the book or at our festivals or, or on the podcast. Like, that's what I think is most, for me, the most um, proud moment of all this. If we could do that, we're going to take a, a short break. And yeah, we have 20 copies left. If we can sell those out, that'd be awesome. And I think in like three or four minutes, just stay tight, grab a beer, and we're going to have Laura and Dan, who are in, featured in the book, come up and share their stories. Thank you. First is the guy whose who's beer you're drinking. Uh, <laughs> Dan Canary is, uh, was probably the third person that I asked to be in this book. He's the founder and current CEO of Harpoon Brewery. And I emailed Dan a couple years ago when I had the idea for the book. And I said, you know, I really have this idea for, for putting these stories together. And I know you have something interesting from leaving a job in commercial banking to start a brewery. Uh, and Dan, you know, without any other, any other pieces of information, sat down with me for a couple hours and we got his story in. So I'd love to give a, a warm welcome to Dan Canary, to his home. And then uh, next up would be Laura McCowan. Did I get that right, McCowan? Uh, when we started the When to Jump community, there was a, a podcast that came out a couple months into 2016 and I got to do this interview, the podcast came out, we, re we reached a ton of people, and we got some emails, but one stood out, and it was from a single mother outside of Boston who that day had decided to, to hand in her notice as an executive in a marketing job and, and go for her dream to be a writer. And I reached back out to Laura, she was kind enough to, to share a pretty you know, honest and vulnerable story, and is featured in the book uh, has an incredible story around going for a, a jump where there's a lot of reasons not to. And I'm look for, looking forward to her sharing that tonight and, and would love to give her a warm welcome as well. Laura McCown. 
Thanks so much for jo joining us, Laura and Dan. Um, obviously, you're both extremely busy people. I'd love to learn you know, why you decide to participate. You, you know, Mike gives you a call, you don't know him from Adam, and he gives you a call and asks you to participate in this book. Well, why did you decide to help him out or, or be a part of the book? He was a real pest, wasn't he, Laura? <laughs> Pretty much? No. <laughs> um, his story is so compelling. You know, he's a wonderful young guy, and his, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. I have four children, not that dissimilar in ages from Mike, and, and here they're going through the same kind of struggles as to what they want to do, and it brought me back to those days for me, so it was, uh, it was a front of mind for me, and I was happy to do it. Oh, I bugged you. You didn't bug me. <laughs> no, I, um, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't going to not do this book. You're like, the, the way that I even heard about you was so, um, so indicative of how my whole process unfolded. Just like, I heard your story as I was quitting my job. And I listened to this Rob Bell podcast, and, and you worked in Boston, and you like had all these similarities. And I just learned through this whole thing to to like pay attention to these synchronicities that happen. And I was like, I, before I even listened to the whole podcast, I emailed you. I was like, Hi, I'm doing this thing. I'm leaving. What are you doing? What is this when to jump thing? And you, I think I talked to you the next day. So I wasn't gonna not do this book. Yeah. Oh. And. Obviously, if you read the book, you'll know more about both of your stories, but if there was one thing in this question, maybe I'll start with Dan, is what would you want people to know about your jump? If there's one, one takeaway, looking back at it all, obviously you've had a tremendous amount of success. What's the one thing looking back on that you'd like to share with, with other people? I would just say, you know, back in the 80s, it just, the startup community was not nearly as evolved as it is now, nor is it, there's not as much encouragement to go and do, actually leave a, a job. I remember talking to my parents, my father had one job his entire career, and the idea that I was gonna leave a good paying banking job to do something uh, he thought was absolutely crazy. The number of breweries have been going like this since the 1930s, and um, my parents didn't drink. That was the other. <laughs> That was the other twist for me, explaining to them what I was going to do. And uh, I started drinking, the age was 18, in uh, high school, and loved beer. And the idea that I could actually make a living uh, in the beer world was almost too good to be true. But I couldn't really explain that to my parents. So um, it is just to follow your curiosity. I think, you know, passion, if you have a passion, that's great. It's almost easier. But if you're just stuck in that place, I don't like my job. I'm not quite sure what I want to do, but I have these interests. Just get on that path and start down and start asking the questions, get out there and start meeting people. And you know, the idea was at the time, just open a brewery was kind of was crazy because the number of breweries had gone from 2,000 to 100 in the 50 years before you know, a bunch of us started to do this. And, uh, but it was the idea what we'd seen in Europe that we thought, you know what, we can bring that to the US if we can educate consumers enough. And so that basically was it, the confidence kind of follow that curiosity and, and, and wherever it went. Great advice. So, Laura, how about you? Yeah, I would, um, I'd say follow your curiosity too. I, I think the biggest thing was that um, people think that you're supposed to have this grand plan of how it's supposed to happen, like how you're supposed to actually jump. And I never had a plan. I just knew, mine, mine was kind of like, not this. <laughs> this I'm not gonna be doing. 
And so I'm going to start doing this other stuff that I, that I want to do. And I just kept following the clues and following the clues. And um, I mean, I can't tell my story without... I had a bigger jump before I quit, which was getting sober. <laughs> Awkward? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Not going to tell you not to drink, but... Um, and you don't have to get sober to jump. But I, I mean, it's important to me because I had this thing, this voice inside me that was like, you, this isn't right, and you kind of want to be doing this other thing. But when I got sober, it got really loud, and I couldn't, it was more like, okay, not this, no, really not this. Like, you're, you can't do this anymore. So, but I didn't, you know, there's like, Mike talks about the 10,000 unsexy steps that happen to get to the place where you actually jump. And those are just the little clues, like the little curiosities that you just keep following. And then, and then it happens. Awesome. And Laura, if I could ask you a follow-up question. You, you jumped when the stakes were a little bit higher than most. You were a single mom and had a daughter. Um, what encouraged you with, with that? How did you pull it off? Obviously, the stakes were higher. You were people in tow. And you still, you still made your jump. A lot of coffee. Yeah. Um, well, again, like having, not to be too serious, but having gotten sober, like I should have been dead, you know? And so my baseline that I was operating from was a little bit different because I knew, um, I don't know, everything is like compared to what, you know? I could be... I could be, I, I just, I guess I was like, I, I wasn't going to waste any more time once I, you know, was, was sober and like I was for almost 40 years old. And um, so I wanted to show my daughter, like, you can have, you know, this is what it looks like to actually chase your dreams. And I wanted her to see that she had a mom who actually did that. And what that means is mom works a lot you know, um, or Alma, you know, my daughter comes with me to things, and, you know, she, uh, I also had to give up, like, this idea that you can do everything really well. Like, we did takeout for a couple years, straight, <laughs> you know, we still do takeout, and um, I don't know, you can't kind of, you can, I think the myth of being able to do all the things uh, needs to kind of go away in order to do that. You gotta, you gotta kind of focus, yeah. Awesome. And, and, and Dan, you described a certain methodology as you, was, you were picking between finance, academia, and beer. So, can you... <laughs> Makes complete sense, doesn't it? Yeah. In, in, before deciding to go with the beer option, um, can you share how you got to that conclusion? Well, again, a, a little bit simil similarities. And I knew I didn't want to do what I was doing, but I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And so... Getting off that box was the hard thing for me. Like, okay, what direction to go in? So what I said is, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to pursue each one of these like I, that's what I'm going to do. Because I knew the process, I would just learn a lot more about it. So I took the GREs. I applied to graduate programs in American history. I applied for jobs in finance. And I worked with Rich and George to write a business plan to start a brewery in Boston. So I did the three things. And it became crystal clear to me a couple of months into it you know, after getting accepted at some schools, a job offer or two, that what I wanted to do was pursue this dream of opening a brewery. Awesome. Awesome. In, in Laura, when, in, in your segment, you talked about the difference between uh, 
for between asking for support rather than permission. Can you elaborate on what that means to you? Yeah, um, I think I had kind of lived my whole life asking for permission to do things, you know? Like, is this the right, is this an okay job to do? Is this like what I, you know, what I should do in school? And not really trusting that I had uh, an internal guidance that I could trust. Um, and I think asking for permission in these types of cases where you're doing something that's maybe outrageous to your parents or even as an adult, you know, to your parents or to other people, you know, you talk about like, there are lots of people who could say that's, that that's crazy and they will tell you that. And I think asking for permission to do something like this is kind of like asking people what to name your baby. Like, you don't want that feedback. <laughs> you don't really want that feedback. You just want them to love the baby. So. I had this moment where I realized it was gonna, I, I was getting there, you know, after the 10,000 um, unsexy steps. And I thought, I gotta call my dad, obviously, and ask him if I can do this. I was like, oh no, we're not, we're not gonna do that anymore. We're just gonna say, this is what's happening, will you support me? And that's how it went with both my parents and like friends and stuff. Just don't ask for permission. Wow. In, in just a few more questions here, but Dan, when you, when you talked about your jump, you said you never looked back. How did you fight the temptation to do that, or how, why is that important in your life when you, 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 de you decided to take your path to, to go into the I beer think, business? You know, I think once you get out on your own and work for yourself or with partners, you almost are unemployable. With, um, <laughs> once, you, once you get the bug and you are out, you're doing your own thing, it's... Uh, it's, it, I think it would be impossible to go back and work for somebody else, I, which limits your job prospects a lot. So you, you have to be successful at whatever you're doing. It's a downward spiral if you're not. Awesome, awesome. And uh, so before we turn it over to the audience for some questions, we just have a quick fire round of questions. So I guess to start uh, with you, Laura, who's your, obviously you're going to become a writer, you've become a writer. Who's your favorite writer right now? Besides Mike Lewis, obviously. God, I mean, Mike Lewis. Uh, no, the other Mike Lewis. The famous <laughs> yeah, the famous Mike Lewis. Uh, I love, I really love Nicole Krause. She's a novelist, and she just came out with a new book called Forest Dark. Uh, and she wrote my favorite book, The History of Love. So she's my favorite. Yeah. Awesome. And Dan, what's your favorite food and beer combination? <laughs> wow. That's a, that's, a, uh, that's a great one. I would probably have to say that I am a, uh, I'm a cheese and beer guy. You know, just kind of simple and great, different cheeses, different strong beers. I love it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, Mike, obviously when you joined the Pro Tour, you were able to travel all over the world. What was your favorite destination that you visited on the, on the Pro Squash Tour? Ooh. Uh, this is a weird one because... I. They're all, they're all cool. It's kind of like picking children. They're all great. Uh, I think I ended up in, the, in a territory called New Caledonia, which if you're going to Fiji and you get terribly lost, you'll end up on this island called New Caledonia. And um, I was with a, a woman who was a, a French chef. It's a French territory. So it was a French chef, and her husband was the skydiving champion from 1980 worldwide. <laughs> He could, I asked him, because I had to know, how do you become a skydiving champion? He could, he could land on a dime, literally on a, on a dime. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> wow. 
And uh, last question, this is for Dan. Is, is it true that my Uncle Corey is your favorite person in the world? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's right over there he's watching. Right, this he's he's right there. Oh, a- absolutely. There's no one. There's no one I respect or admire more. <laughs> but I, All right, that will do it for this week's episode of the Windage Up podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed. Anyway, if you want to find us on social, you know where to go, at when to jump. If you want to find us on our home platform, web-based, it's whentojump.com. The book is out. We are on tour across the U.S., London, Sydney, Dubai, overseas. Uh, just check us out at whentojump.com slash booktour to find out more. And again, if you want to share your jump with us, we'd love to hear it. You can record an audio note, send it to jump at mcmillan.com that's m-a-c-m-i-l-l-a-n.com thank you so much for listening i hope to see you soon on tour and again i'm mike lewis i'll catch you next week everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.